We turn in God's Word now to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. reason for those two song selections that we've used within worship tonight is because both of those songs give you the idea and the impression that this praise that is to be given to God, to Jehovah, is to be total and complete. It's all pervasive. The idea that all of our thought and all of our action is to be Godward thinking. And that is the very thought and idea that Paul places before us in the first six verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And that is what is before us this evening. And so we read God's Word beginning at the first verse. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask your your blessing on the reading of your word this evening. We also ask your blessing on Pastor Bob as he brings this message. And we pray, Father, that you'll give him everything that he stands in need of. Dear Father, that uh, you will prepare our minds and our hearts, that we will think our thoughts after you. Father, that uh, you will uh, empower us, Father, to be ever more faithful followers of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is his precious name alone that we pray. Amen. Amen. For nine chapters, Paul has gone on in this book, in this letter, that he's writing to this church at Corinth, some would say with a lot of restraint. There is something that has been on his mind, something that is in the background that he knows he has to get to. Finally, by the time we turn to the tenth chapter, we get to what Paul needs to deal with. In those first nine chapters, Paul has been very complimentary of this church. He's been very excited. Now, he's not doing that in a pretend way. He's not being hypocritical about it. He has been very honest with this church at Corinth. He has dealt with them honestly, and he is writing these first nine chapters very honestly. And he has been complimentary. He has spoken highly of this church. He's blessed, and I should say he is pleased over the fact that they have indeed followed through on some of the disciplinary action that needed to be followed through on. He is blessed to see and to, to know that some of the issues that he has dealt with with them in that first book have indeed been dealt with. He's heard from Titus of the progress 
that this church is making. He has gone on for the two previous chapters talking about their willingness to give and their desire to give. But you already note a change, don't you, when you you read that first verse. I, Paul, myself, entreat you. It's as if all of a sudden it's like, why is Paul suddenly becoming so passionate about something? Well, over the course of the next several chapters, we hope to to unfold and unpackage that which is upon Paul's heart as he deals with this. And so as we deal with these first six verses tonight, let's deal with it with three words, all beginning with the letter W. First of all, the writing. Secondly, the war. Thirdly, the weapons. The writing, the war, and the weapons. Paul begins by talking about this entreaty, this plea. Now, this is not a plea in the sense of begging, but this is a plea for them to at least stop and to consider. Stop a moment, Corinthians. Consider what I'm saying. Pay attention to the words that I am writing to you. Words that are coming to you with meekness and with gentleness. Meekness is that which takes place in our inner being. Gentleness is that which exhibits itself. We could say gentleness is meekness on display. And meekness is the cause of gentleness. Both words. Meekness and gentleness are certainly words that would describe our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, are they not? In fact, they may be amongst the first of the words that we would use to describe Christ. Especially as we think about passages like Psalm 22 depicting His crucifixion. Or we think about Isaiah 53, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Or we think about that demonstration of this meekness and gentleness in that last week of Jesus' life. The meekness and gentleness of Christ throughout those trials. The meekness and gentleness of Christ as He comes to that cross. The meekness and gentleness of Christ as He addresses His mother and John the meekness and gentleness of Christ as He addresses those who have crucified Him. The meekness and gentleness of Christ who deals with Peter after the resurrection. Certainly those two words depict for us our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They are words that Jesus taught about. One can, I don't think you can read Matthew chapter 5 and those Beatitudes without thinking in terms of the meekness and gentleness that is being taught to us there. Jesus wasn't a coward. Certainly not. Meekness and gentleness do not mean cowardice. Jesus was anything but a coward. But nor was he a reactionary tweeter either. Gentleness and meekness were the mark of his leadership. And it would be wise for us not only to exhibit them in our own lives, 
practice them, but to pray that our leaders also would exemplify such things. Paul is saying, as you read what you're going to read in the next chapters, I plead with you. I plead as you hear this, that I'm writing to you out of meekness and out of gentleness. That I am writing to you out of the Spirit of Christ. That I am seeking to display and to write these words with a meek heart, with a gentle life. These words that come to you. It may be hard and difficult for you to hear. Understand out of which they come. Paul then talks about the fact of when he's with them, I am who am humble with you when I am face to face, but bold towards you when I am away. Let's us in a little bit on the insight of Paul and his work and his ministry. You see, what's interesting is this is exactly the charge his enemies were making. Yeah, that Paul. Yeah, when he's with you, oh yeah, he's Mr. Humble. You get away and what happens? You get a 1 Corinthians chapter, you get a 1 Corinthians letter. Yeah, when he's with you, it's all, this is wonderful, this is great. When he's absent from you, it's expel the immoral brother. Your pride's getting in the way. See, that was the charge of Paul's enemies. It was a charge that he was using the tactics of the world. For how often would it not be true that one's enemies speak so kindly to you and then stab you in the back when they're away? They can be so nice to you face to face, but you get any few moments away from them and here come the knife blows. Paul says, no, I want you to listen to me. Corinthians, I want you to listen to me as I come to you in the gentleness and the meekness of Christ. Yes, it is true. When I am with you, I am humble. Actually, one of the translations uses the word timid. Gentle. And yes, it is true. When I am absent from you, and when I need to confront you, I do so, and I am willing to be bold. I am willing to meet you face to face in that regard. See, Paul doesn't deny what he's done. But Paul does not say that this is the tactic of the world. Paul says, the reason I did this is out of the gentleness of Christ and out of the meekness of Christ. See, what we're going to encounter in the next chapters is Paul is going to deal with those who are his accusers. And he wants us on the very onset to know that he is dealing with these accusers Not because this is some personal vendetta on his part to get back. But because of what they're attacking. Those who are attacking Paul are attacking 
the issue of apostle authority. And Paul says, I cannot let that stand. I cannot let these individuals attack the apostleship. Not only of myself, but he's thinking of the other apostles as well. If their authority is allowed to be brought down, Paul understands the horrible consequences that will have upon the church. So it's not that it's him. It's not that they're attacking Paul. It's that they're attacking an apostle of Jesus Christ. So when you hear me speak, Paul says, you've got to understand, I'm coming to you out of the meekness and out of the gentleness of Christ. Well, who are these attackers? Who are these enemies that are coming? Well, we we can pretty much conclude who they are. These are individuals who took the opportunity of the absence of Paul and the absence of Titus and the absence of others that Paul had sent to this church at Corinth to worm their way into the church to begin to teach a false doctrine. We know them throughout scriptures as individuals who are called Judaizers. They are individuals who want to turn people away from the grace that is found in Jesus Christ alone and turn them back into a works righteousness. They want to peddle an idea that Jesus Christ made it possible for you to perfectly keep the law. And your salvation is not found fully, freely, completely in Christ. He only made it possible. He only made it possible for you to be saved. You will find your true salvation now that you have confessed Christ in obeying all of the Old Testament law. You've got to begin the practice of circumcision again. You have to follow the feasts and festivals. We don't know for sure whether they were willing to go all the way of, of advocating the necessity of animal sacrifices again. It's possible, and we have some evidence that they might have held point at that. But regardless of that, it would be that we have to follow the law and all the principles to actually be considered saved. It is this group that has found their way into the church of Corinth and are using the opportunity of the absence of true biblical gospel preaching to begin to try to convince the Corinthians that Paul was wrong. And you see, one of the ways Paul was wrong is look at what happens. Paul, when he's here, he's this nice, timid guy. And now when he's gone, he writes you this bold letter that he wrote like in 1 Corinthians. You know, what kind of guy is this? What kind of man is this? I, he's no apostle. Why would an apostle act like that? Because an apostle acts with the gentleness and with the meekness of Christ. That's Paul's point. I was with you. You know me. You know that when I was with you, I was like Christ in his meekness and in his gentleness. That being said, Paul now is ready to take on these accusers. And he takes them on with warfare language. Pick it up with me. Okay? 
Verse 3. For, we, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Let's look at that second point then in terms of the war. It's not a war of the flesh, meaning a war that is a physical fight. Paul is not about ready to get into some boxing match with some Judaizers. He's not about ready to go to Corinth and say, okay, false teacher, you in that corner, me in that corner, at the sound of the bell, we're going to fight it out. Literally. He's not about to say that let's use the tactics of the war Let's use the tactics of the physical army. You put a weapon in your hand, I'll put a weapon in my hand, and let's go at it. May the best man win. No, we are not involved in a war of the flesh. A war of this world. A war of physical dimensions. Now, he doesn't say it. He doesn't need to. Because he's alluding to the fact we're in a war, but it's not a physical war. Well, if the war were, if we are in a war and it's not a physical war, a war of the flesh, what kind of war is it? Well, it's a war of the spirit. Now, if you need a text to back that up, okay, keep your finger here at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. There, Paul clearly lays out the fact that This is a spiritual battle. Chapter 6. Go to verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. See, we're not in a war of the flesh but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is the war Paul is saying we are involved in. It's not really about me and Judaizers. It's not about the apostles and the Judaizers. It's not about me, Paul, and Frank, the Judaizer guy. This is a spiritual battle that we are involved in. And notice now, keep your finger here at Ephesians 6, but notice the battle language. Listen to how Paul talks. Not only are there weapons, but look what these weapons are for. There is divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now think about what Paul has said. Paul has said, we we are in this spiritual battle. Why? We're here to destroy these arguments. We are here to destroy these opinions. We are here to take captive. This is not a defensive battle. This is not a defensive war. 
we as the church of Jesus Christ are to be on the offense. We're not constantly backing up as the world comes charging at us with their opinions, with their arguments, with their heresies, with their false beliefs. We as the church are to be the ones pressing the argument. We are to be the ones pressing the war with the goal of destroying those arguments and opinions that are against God. Not just so that um, as long as we get to share our opinion, we're happy. No, we want to crush the opposition. We should be of a mindset to destroy any argument, any opinion that goes against the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is to be our mindset. And I'll place before you, my friends, that I believe that for too long, for too long, we've been fighting a defensive battle. We've been just trying to hold up the forces, let it not sweep us over. Because maybe we've been operating under that mindset. All we're supposed to be is defensive. All we're supposed to be is defensive. No, the one who is filled with the gentleness and meekness of Christ is to be waging an all-out battle to destroy not the people. This isn't a battle against flesh and blood. This isn't a battle against those demonstrators on the streets of Washington, D.C. This isn't a call for the church to say, okay, let's strap on our weapons, let's go to Washington, let's shoot them down, let's establish law and order again. No. But it is a call to the church. Do you see the world of which you are a part? Do you see the mentality of this world? Do you see the way this world thinks? Had a million women, so they say, walking the streets of Washington, D.C., boldly proclaiming, kill children. Where are we? Oh, let's just not let them go too far. Paul does not present the church in that light. Paul presents the church that is involved in a spiritual battle to destroy. Some military experts will tell you that that's been the problem with the last several engagements that the United States have been involved in. We have not been involved in wars to win. We have been involved in wars to just keep the destruction to a minimum. And where has it gained us? Militarily. Not very well. Anybody who is involved in a battle knows if you do not enter that battle with the idea of destroying your enemy, you will be killed.
with all the meekness and gentleness of Christ, we proceed into this warfare with our goal of destroying the arguments that are made against Christ. And, and to take captive every thought to obey Christ. You know, I, I got to tell you, before I wrote this sermon, before I worked on it and was thinking and praying about it, if you had asked me what that verse meant, to take captive every thought, I would have told you, well, what it means is that I as an individual have to make sure that my mind is centered around Christ. I don't think that's necessarily a wrong interpretation. I don't think it's necessarily a bad interpretation. But I will tell you this, it is an incomplete interpretation. To think that all Paul is saying is, Bob, just make sure that you've got your mind focused on Christ. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying this. Bob, you make sure you go out into this world and you make sure that anybody out there who has an argument, an opinion, a thought that is contrary to Christ, that you go out there with the idea that you are going to take that thought captive. You're going to latch onto that thought. You're going to lasso that thought, you're going to surround that thought, and you're going to bring that thought, and you're going to put that thought in prison. And you're going to slam the door so that thought never escapes its prison cell again. Never is allowed to make an influence in this world. Never allowed to influence the life of someone else. You see, it's not just me. Paul is saying we need to be on the offense as the church. Going out there into the world. Disarming these thoughts. That means we have to know our stuff. That means we have to know God's truth. That means we have to know the gospel. That means we have to know what God has said. And if I'm going to go out there and attack the world, if I'm going to go out there and attack, excuse me, the arguments that are pervasive in the world, the opinions that are pervasive in the world, the thoughts that are pervasive in the world, I better have my own thoughts together. I better be a person of the Word. I better be a person who is in the Word. I better be a person who is devouring that Word. I better be a person who is munching on that Word. I had better be a person who is digging so deeply in the Word that no argument has a chance of standing against the truth of God's Word. The truth of the matter is too many of our opponents in this spiritual battle, know the Word better than you and I do. We don't know it. We don't study it. As parents, I'd urge you, be people of this Word. So that as those things you begin to see developing within your children, you have a means of correcting. Not just saying, because I said so. You and I both know that argument doesn't fly. 
You and I both know that by the time we reach 18, and all we've heard is because I've said so, you know what happens when we reach the age of 18. We find some other place to live, and then we don't have to live under, I told you so, or this is what I said, and then we're left, we don't know what to do. Because we've never been grounded in the truth of God's Word. We need to be people in the Word so that we can take every thought captive. So that in every discussion, when something comes up, when somebody wants to take that thought in a direction that is apart from God's Word, that isn't quite fully true to God's Word, we are ready and armed with God's truth to take that thought, to hold it captive, and to say, that thought is wrong. Because God's Word tells me it's wrong. We're to engage in this battle. Taking arguments and destroying them. Of taking opinions and destroying them. Of taking every thought of the world. Not of us, it's of the world. Captive. So we go out as the church of Jesus Christ. So that every thought becomes subservient to the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Finally, what are our weapons? Paul writes in verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We're not here to use guns and ammo. We're not here to use insults and barbs. We're not here to use bombs and violence, and we're not here to use anger and hatred. We are to use the weapons that God has provided us with. Before I tell you what those weapons are, I want you to note that Paul says, verse 4, that the weapons that we have, the weapons for our warfare, the weapons for our fight, have divine power to destroy strongholds. See, the power is not us. The power is found in the weapon. It is the weapon that destroys. It is the weapon that breaks down. It is the weapon that takes captive. Why? Because the weapon has divine power. This is not about us. And what are those weapons? Well, now you can go back to Colossians again, or to Ephesians once again. Because Paul told us what they are. What are our weapons, brothers and sisters? Therefore, verse 13, Ephesians 6, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert, And with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, 
that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. There's your weapons. Weapons that have divine power to destroy the lofty opinions, the arrogant opinions, the arrogant arguments, even the evil thoughts of our world and of our society. As we as the church go on the offense, destroy, take captive with the weapons, the spiritual weapons that God provides for you and for me. And I say this, friends, this evening, in the providences of God. Four years ago, there might have been the problem of the fact that to do such would mean that perhaps your own government may not back you up. But I don't think we have that excuse anymore, church. This perhaps, and I say that perhaps, is God's grace, God's calm. Not so we can sit back and go, oh, wow, it's all taken care of. Washington will make sure it's all right. No, this is the calm that God gives so that the church stop being defensive. That we might go offensively in this world to destroy those arguments that are opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mordecai told Esther, for such a time as this, this, my friends, may be our time to rise up as the church of Jesus Christ, to boldly declare the true gospel. May God bless us as we do. And God's people say, Father, thank you for your word, for its reminder tonight of who we are, of what we are called to do. That in the face of opposition, Father, we are still with the gentleness and meekness of Christ to go into this world, destroy, take captive that which is opposed to you, we pray, Father, that you would bless them, the spiritual weapons that you have armed your church with, that we might go forth as a mighty army, proclaiming your truth. In Christ's name, God's people say, Amen. Four hundred.